You are listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation, a national nonprofit founded on the belief that every pregnancy deserves a happy ending. Visit us online at StarLegacyFoundation.org. And welcome to another episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast. My name is Lindsay Wimmer, and I'm the executive director of the Star Legacy Foundation. It is my honor and pleasure today to be welcoming Clarice Thorick, who is a longtime labor delivery nurse who has just years of, of experience and a wealth of information um, that she could love to share with us because she's been such an advocate for families and their babies over the years. And I think she really does help us understand um, the role that, that families can play in, in their healthcare and how we can partner with the health professionals to make sure that we give um, every pregnancy and every baby the best possible outcome that we can, can come into. So Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. All right. So for those of you who have not yet seen it, I would first of all encourage you to visit the guest blog that Claire recently wrote for us um, on our Stillbirth Matters blog that really talks about maternal intuition and the important role that that can play in identifying early which pregnancies and which babies um, may may be starting to show signs of of trouble. So I'm just curious, Claire, when did you first realize the importance of maternal intuition and the role that that could play in pregnancy health and pregnancy outcomes? Well, I've thought a lot about this question, and I have to answer it by saying I think I learned to trust my own intuition first when I was a brand new uh, labor and delivery nurse And uh, it was my job to get the doctors there at just the right time, not too early, not too late, so that they could do the delivery. And my job was to look after those mothers and babies. And of course, we didn't have fetal monitors in those days. And I remember very well one mother whose baby I was worried about. I don't know why, but I just felt worried And I counted and counted and counted the heart tones with my um, uh, stethoscope. And I could never find anything wrong with that baby. And this was before we had any fetal monitors. So I just kept checking and checking. And sure enough, when that baby came out, it was limp, it was pale, It couldn't breathe. It took a long time for it to come around. And I have no idea how I knew that that baby was in trouble, but I somehow knew it. And so that was my first really strong experience with my own intuition. And I think that taught me uh, to listen to mothers because nobody knows their baby like the mothers do. Um, And then a few years later, um, after I had my family, I went to uh, a different hospital, Fairview Southdale, and we were so busy there. It was just crazy because it was one of the first uh, uh, suburban hospitals in the Twin Cities. And uh, that's when fetal monitoring came on the scene. And because I'd been doing labor for a while, I was really fascinated with what I could learn about these babies 
by looking at the strip as it printed out moment by moment, every single heartbeat was uh, transcribed on paper. And so uh, we started noticing that we could see what the baby was gonna be like once it was born. And then that prediction uh, became an attempt to handle uh, mothers with high-risk pregnancies and see if we could extend that prediction of well-being for a longer period of time. And that's when antepartum testing uh, came into being, when we did non-stress tests and biophysical profiles, OCTs, and so on. And um, I was lucky enough just now getting ready for um, for this discussion to get the ACOG standard for the, that testing. And I was really kind of surprised but gratified that it hadn't changed except for one very important piece. And it said that these predictions of well being are for chronic issues only. And so that explains some of the losses that we had when the testing said the baby was going to be okay and it wasn't right. Well, that prediction hasn't been improving much since I was working back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, I have been thinking about it and during the uh, shutdown now from COVID, I took out all these old stories that I had uh, written down about mothers who did some amazing things. And so that's where the, the blog came from. Uh, but to answer that question, I don't know exactly. Uh, it, like I say, it was my own intuition, I think. But the other part of it was that our perinatologists, the doctors, listen to the mothers as well. And so that affirmed uh, my own sense of intuition. And moms listen to their babies and we need to listen to them first and foremost. And I can't say that loud enough or long enough or often enough because it's true. Only the mother has 24 seven access to that baby. And so who could know the baby better than the mom? I think that's that's so well put and, and beautifully said. And I'm I'm quite certain that that most parents that are that are listening can can relate to a lot of, of what you're talking about. So you so. you kind of hinted at it and, and you've teased us and certainly I have um you know just was so amazed and, and and inspired by some of the stories that you shared in your blog. But are there any stories that stand out to you? of when um, parents were able to use their, their intuition and, and, and were brave enough to share that with you. Yes, um, uh, the, the, the test for uh, um, the non-stress test is a 40 minute run of um, the fetal monitor and you're supposed to see nice accelerations with the baby's movement. I did that for one mom and I showed the test to the doctor. He read, the, the doctors read them all. And he said, it looks okay to me. And 
I said, but the mom is worried. And the doctor said, well, let's admit her then. And so she was admitted to labor and delivery, put on a monitor, and at midnight, that baby crashed and he had to get out of bed and come and deliver the baby by emergency cesarean section. I mean, what could be more evidence of the power of the mother's intuition than that story? And that is in the blog, but I just can't get over it. Um, he, that uh, doctor made a joke about me having intuition with an, a fetal monitor. And he thought that was kind of weird to, to uh, mix the technology with intuition, but uh, it works. Um, then I had another mother uh, that uh, had had many losses very early uh, at 29 weeks. And so she was sent to the perinatal center where I was working. And we started testing at 26 weeks and every week the test was perfectly normal. And during that time, I taught the mother that this was to keep her baby safe and that we're gonna find the perfect birthday for this baby, not too late and not too early. And so when she became 29 weeks again, like she had been with her losses, she came in for a test and it was fine. And, uh, but because that mother trusted herself she went home the next day she called in and said the baby has gotten quiet and so she came back in again and sure enough that baby was in trouble too at the same gestational age as the ones that had been lost but because she knew she could come anytime and didn't trust the, the technology more than she trusted herself she saved that baby's life and what was found on delivery was that there was a placental abnormality. The placenta hadn't grown enough. And so that was probably the reason that the other babies were lost. The placenta couldn't keep up with the growth of the baby. And then there's single sack twins too. And uh, that story is, um, just, just as important, I think, the mother was in the hospital because with twins and only one amniotic sac, the uh, chances of the cords getting mixed up with the feet and the arms, everything moving in there, are the chance is really high that there will be trouble. So I was doing uh, testing, antepartum testing every day. One morning I came to work and she had asked that I come and see her first before I did anything else. And um, so I did. And sure enough, the APGARS, uh, the, the uh, test results were like only for fluid did uh, the baby get credit, one of them, but the other one was just fine. So she was brought to the operating room right away and delivered. And so she saved that baby's life by saying something is different. I want this baby looked at. And um, it was probably just in the nick of time uh, because the APGAR was only good for uh, the fluid. The baby didn't move. The baby didn't have good tone. The baby didn't practice breathing. Those were all features of the test. 
So uh, mothers know their babies and the consistency of fetal movement because they're there uh, 24 seven, like I said. And even busy mothers, when they have jobs and they have other kids and they're busy keeping house, um, even so they notice changes. And we just absolutely have to uh, look at that and pay attention to that. And then we tried to standardize that by trying to do kick counts. <laughs> and that didn't work uh, because uh, I, I personally tried to put together a kick count folder to give to mothers. And I did a whole bunch of research uh, in the library. and We didn't have Google in those days. So it was a lot of work. Uh, but we could not find a standard that people could agree on around the country. So ACOG could not come up with a magic number for when a kick count tells that the baby is having trouble. So we had to give up on that one. <clears throat> and I think that just speaks to the individuality and to um, standardization is fine, but it has its limitations. Um, and, and stuff happens. So uh, we, we need, like I say, to teach the mothers that their information is so important. Uh, and one of the things that is so important, and this is probably the most important thing I'm gonna say today, somewhere, somehow, the information got into prenatal teaching that uh, baby's movement will slow down if labor is imminent, if labor is gonna start pretty soon, you're due and the baby gets quiet, that you, that's normal. I had a mother, she was uh, a planned pregnancy, very well educated, obviously too well, and uh, she came in for a test and I didn't like the way she made the appointment. My baby has stopped moving. And so I had an intuition that that was going to not be a good story. And uh, sure enough, she came in expecting to have a test done and be sent home and await labor. Well, her baby had died because she was so well-educated about this supposed fact that she didn't report diminished movement and her baby did not survive. It's one of the saddest uh, stories I, I have, saddest cases I have ever seen. So uh, we, we know our kids and mothers, mothers know, and we just really need to pay attention to that. Um, so some of those stories are in the blog. I think probably most of them, but um, that's those are the ones that really stand out for me. Well, and I can see why they stand out because they really are powerful, and and you can't really describe or or 
kind of put any of this into to words any better than the the lived experience of of you and, and so many of these families that you worked with. Yes. I loved a couple of comments that you made there talking about trusting um, yourself more than the technology. And, and it is very easy, and this probably comes back to the, the fetal movement um, things too, is it's, it's such a natural desire for us to want to have very clear guardrails about what is normal and what is not normal. It's, it's so much easier to have something very objective that everybody in the room can look at and say, yep, the light is red or the light is green. And, and unfortunately, as, as we've learned, pregnancy and certainly maternal intuition doesn't, doesn't follow that kind of, of path. And so I think sometimes maternal intuition either gets ignored or it hasn't been pulled into medical science as much because it's, it is, it's very hard to study. It's, it's not um, so, but that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, some legitimacy to it clearly. But, but a lot of times um, people will worry about responding to it because it's not scientific, or maybe the, the parents will even worry about bringing it up because they know that it's not a scientific thing. So how, how do you talk to people when they, they worry that it's, it's too fluffy or that it isn't based on anything real? Well, I don't like to use this word, but I think it's arrogant to think that, um, every everything is going to be the same for every single person um and uh i looked it up in the dictionary just to see what it would say intuition is the ability to know something without having proof and then the other um thing it, albert einstein did a quote that got me going on this whole thing and I'm going to read it because I want to make sure I get it right. But he says, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is its faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the sacred gift. Now, if Albert Einstein can say that, I think we better pay attention. So um, uh, the other thing about science that um, makes me so firm in this is because my career started in 1953, <laughs> I retired in 96, and I'm still in touch with this community. Um, uh, I have seen so many changes in the scientific way that we have been doing OB, which is a normal process. It is just a regular uh, natural thing and we have medicalized it and tried to make it scientific. And it takes away all the, uh, all the variations that are bound to be there. And uh, I think it's just impossible for us to think that we're going to stop at this moment and not learn anything more. Come on, that just doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, 
this is one that I learned. A mother at 32 weeks came in for testing and she was having contractions. And since she was only 32 weeks, that would mean prematurity and a, a trip to maybe the NICU. So I checked her cervix because I couldn't send her home contracting. Her cervix was firm and long and she wasn't ready for labor at all. And so I said, well, I don't know why you're contracting, but um, we better get you over to labor and delivery and they'll give you some tocolytics and that'll stop your labor. And then you can go home and I'll see you next week. So that was fine. I didn't think anything more about it. And the next morning I came to work, she visited me and she wasn't pregnant anymore. And what had happened was that when the baby was born, because they could see he wasn't happy by the monitor, it showed that the baby was in trouble and the baby had made her go into labor and the amniotic fluid was full of meconium. The baby had had a bowel movement and it was in an awful environment and it, the baby made his mother go into labor. Now that says the baby has a lot to do with what's going on. And didn't we call babies blank slates when they were born a long time, not so long ago. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a, a really uh, important thing. And then the other part about that, um, I have been able to be in touch with an organization called APA. And that is, um, oh, I didn't bring the book. Association for Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health. They look a lot at the baby's contribution to the pregnancy, just like that little 32 weeker did. And, um, it's an amazing organization. Um, I went to a conference in Poland and the opening remarks of the um, person leading the conference set were, um, when the it, the baby becomes you, the pregnancy, when the it, the pregnancy becomes you, the baby, then the dialogue begins. And so they are trying to um, certify some way what the baby knows inside the uterus. And when we started learning about that, one of our nurses had a three-year-old who was able to talk, and uh, it was said that three-year-olds can sometimes remember their intrauterine experience. And so she asked her little boy, so do you remember what it was like when you were in mommy's tummy? And he said, yeah, when you peed, it made so much noise. <laughs> and when you walked too fast, it hurt my head. <laughs> how can anybody make that up but a three-year-old 
clearly has some memory of his intrauterine life. And so that is a clue to how much we don't know or understand about the fetal part of pregnancy. And we've got a whole lot to learn there. So that's, uh, I, and did I say the, um, the dictionary definition is the ability to know something without having proof? Yeah, I, I think it's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's true. And knowing is kind of a strong word. Uh, a feeling is what it, the experience is more like to me anyway, but um, we need to pay attention to it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, and I, I have to believe that um, your, your, these stories and your years of experience have just as much credibility as, as any randomized controlled trial that we can come up with because there, there's very few, um, very few substitutes for, for good old experience. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. So what advice do you have um, for, for moms in particular, but for, for families that um, are, are in the process of expanding their families? What, what would you like to tell them or what advice do you have for them regarding maternal intuition? Well, I think it's really important that moms um, have the, the capacity to stand up to um, the fact that the technology doesn't agree with their sense of it, that they need to speak up and insist and not trust it more than they trust themselves. And I think that's uh, been proven over and over again um, by all the mothers that come in with diminished movement and their babies need to be born. And I also, I'm glad you said families because fathers can be a great help. Um, I know of one dad that um, when his mom went, his wife went to uh, sleep at night, he would put his hand on the uterus and get, do his own kick count, if you will. Um, so he was very much involved and paying attention affirmed the mother's knowing, which gave it a whole lot more strength. And then she would, she would have a lot behind her when it was time for her to speak up and say, I'm not satisfied with the care that you are recommending for me. Is there another avenue? And that's a perfectly legitimate thing for any pregnant woman to do because, and, or dad, and when there's a difference of opinion, I think very often that's when the dads can uh, speak up too and uh, be a part of the conversation because these are lifelong decisions for this family. For us in the medical field, it's our work today and it's gone tomorrow. But for the family, you know, if they are uh, feeling not quite right, they need to say so. Um, so I can't emphasize that too much. Um, and it, it, it doesn't matter if it rubs somebody the wrong way. Then we as medical people, doctors and nurses, we need to listen, learn to listen and act on those instincts of the mother and use the technology to affirm 
her knowing, not contradict. And so when I used to start testing, I, I would ask a mother as I was putting on the monitor, so tell me about your baby. What do you know about your baby? And how do you feel about your baby? And if, if she said, well, I, I don't know, I have, it's kicking and it does about the same every day and so on. And then when my test turns out to be good and says that the baby is safe for a week, that is powerful affirmation for her knowing. And that's the way we should be using the technology instead of saying, you reported diminished movement and we say the baby's fine because the test is okay. That happened for my niece and she knew what kind of work I do, I, I, I did. <laughs> um, and she, she it was near term, had a test. She was worried about the baby and uh, the, the test was fine. And she called me and she was just crying her eyes out because she said, I feel like I don't know my baby. And that was, that gave me a really powerful um, message that mothers should not be told they're wrong about what they feel about their baby because there is such a thing as timing. And who can predict when death is going to occur? I mean, anybody who's been around death knows it's unpredictable and time will tell. And a lot of that is stuff we, we can't really understand. So we just have to keep looking. And uh, if science and mother disagree, it's perfectly okay to say, can we look at it from a different direction? Is there another thing we can do? Or uh, in many cases, we did, we called the tests equivocal and then we would repeat them the next day instead of wait a whole week. And that's how we caught a lot of them because of the timing. And uh, again, with this, I have to say something that Albert Einstein wrote. The more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. And we could very uh, well adopt that humility regarding science, I think. So that's kind of it. I, I think it's it's perfect. And, and far for, for me to argue with Albert Einstein, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Or any of us. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and I, I like how you gave some, some very clear and simple um, phrases that health professionals can use, because I think a lot of times, because it isn't considered scientific or it isn't something that is necessarily taught to health professionals in their training about how to even talk about intuition, let alone respond to it. So it, it can be very helpful to have some of those phrases as, as appropriate ways to, to bring it up or to respond. So I think I'm hoping that's very helpful um, to a lot of the health professionals that are listening. But if, do you have other advice or suggestions for them as they try to incorporate more of this into their practice? Well, um, when I um, when I did some research as I was writing, um, one of the little 
tidbits was that people with more, this is doctors now, doctors with more experience had a better record for uh, correct reading of tests uh, than the, the newer people. So like you said, experience really matters. And uh, fetal monitoring is uh, a very subjective. Uh, I have had, uh, I, I failed a test and I used to teach fetal monitoring, but somebody else wrote the test and, and uh, you know, one of the doctors said, the fetal monitor is the ultimate retrospective tool. And he was very frustrated because he had a poor outcome and he looked at the strip afterwards and he could see what he didn't see before the delivery. And so he felt like he could be incriminated for not seeing it as he was uh, getting used to reading monitor strips. Uh, so the subjectivity that is involved in reading monitor strips, reading umbilical artery ratio and all of these technologies, they're measuring placentas now, they're doing all kinds of um, other things to augment the antepartum testing uh, protocols. I had a conversation with one of my favorite perinatologists uh, he had been retired for a few years, and I told him one of my stories about the mother knowing what was going on, and it wasn't uh, clinically significant. And right, the first thing he said was, you've got to listen to the mothers. And he was about as experienced as any of the perinatologists that I worked with. He was the only one who could do, um, in the Twin Cities, who could do uh, transfusions through the umbilical cord for RH negative mothers who had positive babies. And I got to help him with that. And when he went on vacation, the only place, the nearest place you could go to get that procedure done would be Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So he was kind of a uh, an expert in his field. And when he said that, I, I tell the story about uh, intrauterine transfusions just to verify his expertise. <laughs> well, I, I think I think you have, have done more than um, share enough wisdom with us to to validate your expertise, and so I I certainly trust your your judgment of of so much of the, the content and the individuals that you have been describing um, so well. I, I know that this is something that, that really is near and dear to, to so many people. And I think it's something that we need to be talking more about. And I am so grateful for all of the um, advocacy that you've done, all the education and, and everything that you do both personally and professionally to try to really help, help us learn more about how to listen to these um, moms and babies and, and make sure that we are, are not missing on those, those signs that they give us, even if it doesn't show up in the technology. So this has been a, a fascinating conversation for me. I, I hope it hasn't been too painful because <laughs> um, I know you were nervous about but what this all meant, but we, we just are so grateful for you being willing to share um, all of your expertise 
um, with us and with our families and with the health professionals that are constantly striving to do better for their families. Thank you. Well, um, the last thing I thought of this morning as I went for a walk was we know our kids better than anyone and we need to stand up for them at all times, even before they're born, maybe especially before they're born. I'm going to end it on that note because I, I can't think of anybody to say it better. So thank you so much, Claire. This has been absolutely fantastic. I encourage everyone to read her guest blog at Star Legacy if you haven't already. And thank you so much for everything, Claire. Take care. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It's been a pleasure and a real privilege to share. That's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. Contact us at info at starlegacyfoundation.org to share feedback, request support, or suggest topics or guests for future podcast episodes. Mm-hmm.